Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you uh, today. I've enjoyed working with InTown for about three, three or four months now, and I've realized I could possibly become a pastor here because I have a beard. It seems to be a Brian, Steve, and Brian all have beards. But it's kind of a Portland thing, I guess. But uh, it's been a pleasure to work with those three uh, these last months, and I've worked with some of your congregants. Um, and I'm really happy to be able to share with you this morning. Um, have you ever had a friend or loved one that you thought you knew really well, and then years into the relationship, you found out something that just totally surprised you about that person? I'm sure married couples, have you had, had that experience before? And with friends or, or your children even? Well, um, my best friend is a guy named Jason Rickwald Schmidt. Bit of a tongue twister, last name, uh, Jason Rickwald Schmidt. And we got to know each other when we did campus ministry. We were both working for InterVarsity together. And uh, over the years of serving students and loving students, we became just best friends. And I thought I knew everything about Jason. We would meet weekly and share our, our sins and confess to one another and hold each other accountable. We played basketball and watched uh, the Lakers and Blazers and all sorts of games together. We played together. We just were best, best friends. And I knew everything. I knew it was deep, dark stuff. And I thought I knew everything about this guy. Well, I thought I knew everything except one particular thing. One day, I was at his uh, parents' house uh, having dinner. And his uh, mother said in the middle of dinner, she's like, Jason, would you like to see this year your Christmas Hummel? Now, does anyone in this room know what a Hummel is? Okay, a Hummel, these are German porcelain dolls that are made in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in Germany, handcrafted. They're about this big. They're cute, and no 26-year-old man should have a Christmas Hummel. And Jason kind of shrank down, and I kind of lit up. And I was like, Mrs. Rickwold, I'd love to see Jason's Christmas Hummel. So she has me turn around, and there's this huge case, beautiful glass case, with one Hummel for every year that Jason has been alive, 26 of them. And this utterly shocked me, and it utterly embarrassed Jason. And like a good best friend, I've shared it with every church I've spoken at since then. (laughs) And that was a really odd but funny and surprising thing about Jason. He had never once mentioned this in all of our years of friendship. He never confessed it in accountability. Nothing. It was silent. And this shocked me about Jason. And this is a funny story, but for me as a follower of Jesus, this has made me think, are there things that 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road that I'm going to find out about Jesus that I never knew about? Are there things that Jesus is passionate about that I have not been passionate about in the past? What are these things? And I think it's a question that all of us as Christians should be asking. I mean, Jesus isn't collecting hummels, but what are the things that Jesus is passionate about that we as the church may have missed? Now, what are the things that Jesus is passionate about? I think two that we could all agree on is that Jesus is passionate about sharing his story with the lost, about evangelism. And Jesus is passionate about caring for the weak, the poor, the hungry, the homeless. Those are two things that if you look at even where the church gives its money to nationally and globally, you could see God's heart. The church in the U.S. gives $6 billion a year to fund evangelistic and church planting efforts. 
And the church gives $9 billion a year to fund poverty relief and compassion ministry. And in so doing, it shows to the world God's great love for our world and his passion for those that haven't heard the message and those that are hungry. But one passion of God's that I think we as the church have missed has been God's great passion for justice, for the oppressed, for those that are suffering at the hand of a perpetrator, for those suffering from injustice. What exactly is injustice? A couple uh, months ago, I was on my way to a potluck, and uh, I was running late, so I ran to Fred Meyers, and I grabbed one of those big old fruit trays, and, you know, going to Fred Meyers at about 5.30, 6 o'clock, and any weeknight is like a really bad idea. Like, most of Portland descends on Fred Meyer at that time. And so I'm running to the check, express checkout line, 15 items or less, and there's a guy with 18 items in front of me. 18 items! I'm a little ticked off at this, and I'm looking for a manager because this is an injustice. This guy is blocking my line. At that point, I think God was more passionate about my own heart for patience. But uh, that's not the type of injustice that we're talking about. The injustice that we're talking about that burns God's heart is the reality that right now, as we're worshiping this morning, there are 27 million people in our world that are living in slavery. There are 27 million people in slavery right now as we're fellowshipping here. There's more people in slavery than if you add up all the states, populations of Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Colorado, and North and South Dakota combined. And if you take the entire sum of people taken out of Africa during the 400 years of the slave trade, there are more people in slavery now than the entire sum of the transatlantic slave trade. And even in the U.S., there are approximately 100,000 children in the U.S. that are being commercially sexually exploited. Children that are forced to be raped for profit. Even in our own country. But the challenge with slavery is that for me, and I think for all of us, it's hard to wrap our minds and our hearts around. How many of us have really met slaves in our life? We met people in need of hung, hung, or food or shelter or in need of hearing the gospel, but a slave? It just seems like something for the history books. But I work for International Justice Mission, and one of the types of work that we do is to free people from modern-day slavery. We free people just like Shama. Shama, when my colleagues at IJM got to know her, was an eight-year-old girl in India. Her mother was pregnant and about to give birth, and there were some complications with the birth. So the family had to borrow $25 to pay for a doctor. Now, for us, that's nothing. But for Shama's family, they did not have that. So they had to borrow this money from a local moneylender. And in order to pay it back, he said, your daughter, Shama, has to come work for me. And she would work for him six days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day, and she rolled these small cigarettes. They're called BD cigarettes. She had to roll 2,000 a day. And if she did not hit her quota, he would count as if she had not worked at all that day. He was paying her 50 cents per week. And at this rate, this was going to take Shama months, if not years, to pay this back. She was in indentured servitude, in slavery. 
And if she didn't hit her quota, he would beat her. He would withhold food from her. And her family had no recourse because the law was not protecting them. Shamo was left to rot in this place, a little eight-year-old child rolling cigarettes day in and day out. It's estimated that Shama is one of 10 million children in India alone that are held in slavery. How is Shama supposed to believe that there is a loving God that cares for her? How are these 10 million children or the 27 million people held in slavery supposed to believe that our God is actually good? Well, if we look at Scripture, the answer is very clear. One passage that we did not hear earlier today, I'll read. It's Genesis chapter 18, verse 17 to 19. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham all that he has promised. So there's three points I want to make from this passage. This is just an interesting snapshot into God's mind of why he created the covenant with Abraham. We get to see what's the purpose. And we see first God's plan is that his people would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That God's people would bless all the nations. Two, God's plan for his people to bless the nations, is that his people would bring righteousness and justice. That's how God's people are going to bless the nations, by bringing the righteousness and justice of God. And three, in the Hebrew, the righteousness and justice in this passage, it's about bringing rightness where there is wrong, good where there is evil, light where there is darkness. It's about restoring society where there is evil. And then if we jump to today's gospel reading in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say, you could be the light of the world, or I hope you're the light of the world. He says, you in fact actually are the light of the world. That is your purpose. That's your destiny as followers of Jesus. We are to be the light of the world, to bring light to those in darkness. And this is a beautiful vision of God's plan for you and God's plan for the world that he calls us as followers to step in and bring his light to those suffering from darkness in our world. But I wonder if we as the church have missed out on the full promise that we see in the covenant between God and Abraham because we have not brought justice to the world in the ways that God's heart desires. We have brought compassion and evangelism, but the justice that God hopes for, I wonder if we as the church have missed out on that. People are suffering in our world right now because they have a real oppressor holding power over them. They're suffering because of the abuse of other people. An example in Scripture of this, actually, of injustice, is actually King David. King David, we all know, is described as a man after God's own heart. But King David one day is out on the roof and he looks down and he sees Bathsheba bathing and she's a married woman and he uses his power as king to take from Uriah the Hittite his wife, Bathsheba. And then later he uses his power as king to have Uriah killed. That's an example 
of injustice, using your power to take from others the good thing that God intended for them. And this is what we also see in today's psalm that we read. In verse 8 and 9 it says, He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, ambush he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims, like a lion in cover. He lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. When I turned about age 18, when I went to college, that's when I started to really read the scripture seriously. And I would read passages like this, and I thought, that doesn't happen today. People crying out in this way, it's just not happening. And I thought these were, they were crying out about spiritual issues. But if you look at the world today, people are crying out in the same way about real issues, real people being oppressed by real people. People just like Joe T. Joe T is a 16-year-old girl in India who came from a poor family that needed money. And a woman told Joti about an opportunity to come work in the city. And so Joti went with this woman. And while they were on the train, this woman gave her some tea. And the tea was drugged. Joti passed out and she woke up in a nightmare. She had been sold to a brothel where she was forced to service 10 to 15 men a day. In her time there, she was forced to have two abortions. She became HIV positive. I was in India about two years ago. And I found that in, to be able to pay to rape a child like Jyoti, it costs $3.50, the price of like a latte. It's estimated that there are one million children in our world today that every year that are trafficked into the sex industry. One million new children brought into the sex industry to be raped and exploited by others. How is Jyoti going to know that our God is good and loves her? And how are all these children that are suffering in this gross abomination? As Christians, how are we supposed to think about the suffering? We begin, of course, by asking, how does our God think about the suffering? And we return to Psalm 10. In verse 17 and 18, it says, You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. And then in Micah 6, 8, this is a famous verse. It says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. This is good news that God calls each and every one of us to do these things. And this is the clearest call in Scripture, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And we see that it's God's plan to call us in the Genesis 18 and the Matthew 5 passage to be God's light to those in darkness, to be light to Shama and Joti and the millions of others that are suffering. But I don't know about you, when I hear these stories, and when I hear these statistics, 27 million, I feel pretty overwhelmed. And I get bolted to my seat in despair and thinking, how can I actually do anything? How can I really be light to people suffering in such gross and horrific ways? 
We sense the overwhelming need and just the total inadequacy of our resources. I think it's in these moments that we should remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, many of you guys, you, you know this story. It's like a classic in Sunday school. Um, so the disciples have just gotten back from being sent out for the first time, two by two. And they are just absolutely stoked. They've been casting out demons, preaching the gospel, just doing all sorts of ministry. And they are just so elated. And they come back and tell Jesus all these great stories. But the disciples, they are exhausted. And Jesus is rejoicing with them. And he sees how tired they are. So he says, let's get in a boat and let's go to a deserted place to rest. So they get in the boat and they go across the river to a deserted place. And they get there and there's 5,000 people waiting there. And they're just eager to hear more. And the disciples look at this and they, they get a little annoyed. They wanted rest. And, but Jesus, it says in the scriptures, uh, they were, saw the crowd and they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them. So the day goes on. You know, Jesus keeps teaching. And the disciples are sitting there tired. They're getting a little cranky and crabby. And they're starting to tap their feet and look at their watch. And one of them goes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, it's, it's getting close to dinner. How about you send them home so they could, you know, go eat? And Jesus just turns around to them and says, you, you give them something to eat. And they're now, they're like crabby and cranky at this point. They're like, Jesus, there's 5,000 people. We cannot feed all these people. And by the way, you promised us rest. But Jesus simply asks at that moment, well, what do you have? What do you have? So they go around and they find some punk little kid with some few loaves and fishes. And they take these loaves and fishes. And Andrew, who got his PhD in public policy down at U of O, says, what are these among so many? He's the cynic, the realist. How are you going to feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes? But Jesus simply says, give them to me. And Jesus is the one who takes responsibility for the miracle in that moment. And he ends up feeding 5,000 people, plus they have tons of leftover food after this. Jesus is the one who takes responsibility. The boy was simply responsible for obedience. He just had to give the little he had. And Jesus ended up feeding 5,000 people. Now, why do you think Jesus chose to do it that way? We know from Scripture, God's got other methods to do mass feedings. He did a manna dump in the desert. He could have done that. Why did Jesus do it this way? I think he wanted to give one boy the coolest day of his life. I'll bet that boy ran home and he's like, I cannot wait for my mom to ask me if I ate my whole lunch. (laughs) Do we imagine that Jesus actually needed that boy to do that miracle? Not at all. But do you imagine that that boy will ever forget that day? That was the most powerful day What a small day that boy would have had had he kept his lunch to himself. Shama is not held in slavery any longer. At IJM, we have investigators on our staff, and they go and try and find uh, cases where people are being held unjustly. And they found out that Shama was being held making these cigarettes. And we wrote up an affidavit, and we took that to the local magistrate's office on a Friday. And he could not meet with us till Monday. And oftentimes uh, in India, there's a lot, if you have a weekend, there's a lot of opportunity for the fact that 
IJM was investigating a case to get leaked to the slave owner. So IJM, we started to pray. My colleagues started to pray. And we pray a lot at IJM. In fact, every office shuts down for an hour every day to pray. And that Sunday, we went to a local small little church, and we told them the story of Shama, and we asked them to pray with us. And that particular day, they had a guest speaker as well. It was the magistrate that we were going to meet with the next morning. And he was so moved by the story of Shama, and he was so brokenhearted that he committed he would free Shama and free all the children that are in his district, and that he would put pressure on all the other magistrates in the districts around him to free children that are held in slavery. And on that day, hundreds of kids were freed. And it's all because everyone at IJM, we are sheer geniuses. Not at all. It is because our God hears the cry of Shammah, and he calls us to be his light to those in darkness and to bring freedom. And he used just the Christians at IJM to bring freedom to Shama and hundreds of other children that day because our God cares about people suffering in slavery. And Jyoti is no longer held in slavery. and She's no longer in a brothel being brutally abused. Some of the... Uh, girls at the brothel had been talking about this God named Jesus. And Jyoti felt desperate. So one day she just started to pray. And the only prayer she knew how to pray was just say Jesus' name. Jesus. 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 A couple weeks after that, some of our undercover investigators found evidence that Jyoti and several other girls were being held against their will And with the local law enforcement, we went in and we were able to free Jyoti. And she was so moved. Uh, She was in our aftercare program and she gave her life to Christ. And then a month later, she heard that we were going again to another brothel in Mumbai. And she said, I want to be there to, to offer love and care and support to the girls as they come out. So Jyoti went and she helped us free Kalindi. And Kalindi immediately was so moved. She said, I know right now where there are other girls being locked away in a dungeon. So Kalindi took us, and literally in this dungeon that was like a hole in the ground in the side of a building, they opened it up, and about a score of girls walked out. They were held in this dark, locked-away dungeon every day to be brought out at night. It It was utterly dark. All of these girls were freed from the darkness of a dungeon and walked into freedom, all because the body of Christ showed up for Jyoti, Jyoti showed up for Kalindi, and Kalindi showed up for these girls. That is our God. On that one day, that little boy had the most amazing day because he chose to give the little he had to meet a great need. This morning, one question I want to ask all of us as we come to the table is what are the loaves and fishes that Jesus has given us that we could freely just open up our arms and say, Jesus, take these, use them, magnify them, and bring light to darkness. I just want to give you guys a few suggestions of some things that you can do. Now, one of my Christian heroes is the Christian English parliamentarian, William Wilberforce. He brought a bill before 
uh, the uh, parliament 16 years in a row to abolish slavery in England. That's perseverance. And God used him to bring down slavery in an empire. And there's some legislation before Congress and the Senate now. And if you're interested in become, doing some advocacy to end slavery, you could speak with me. I'll be at the uh, table in the back afterwards. Some of you today, these stories feel overwhelming and new, and maybe you've never heard about slavery. Well, a step that you can take is to just learn more and educate yourself. Our founder at IJM wrote a book called Good News About Injustice, and it talks about the issues of injustice in our world and talks about God's heart. That would be a great way to learn more. And then even here at Intown Prez, you guys already have people that are trying to do something about the issue of slavery here. Kalen, one of your congregates, he's created an organization called Trafficking Justice that's just getting off the ground. And I know Brian Lando is going to be leading some initiatives. So if you want to get more involved in doing something even here in your own community, connect with Brian and Kalen, and they'll tell you about some great opportunities to get involved. And then finally, pray. This work is dark. And IJM believes that prayer fuels our ability to do justice. So pray as a church. You can go to IJM's website and sign up to become a prayer partner and get emails every week about real-life stuff that's happening. When I did campus ministry, I uh, would take students every summer either overseas or to an inner-city part of our country to work. And one summer I took students to uh, Los Angeles and we were living and working at a homeless shelter for two months. And um, that summer, I got to meet this guy named Eric Wade. Eric and I, we were both 26 at the time, yet we came from two completely different worlds. When uh, I was born, almost immediately, my grandparents and parents put money into a college fund. It wasn't a question of, am I going to go to college? It was which one. And I just had a lot of resources and access to good education and, and that's stuff around me. It, it made my life, you know, and getting a good education pretty easy. Eric was born and grew up in inner city L.A. He was surrounded by gangs. It wasn't even expected that he would graduate from high school, let alone even dream about college. By the time Eric was 26, he had four children, and his family had been homeless on the streets. They had even been homeless when they had an infant. And this summer I met Eric, he was living in this uh, apartment program. His family was off the streets, and he had a job. And he was doing really well. But in the middle of the summer, he got in a small little car accident. His car, could, he couldn't pay for the parts to replace uh, the, whatever was broken, and he couldn't drive his car now. So he couldn't drive the 45-minute commute to his work. If he can't do that, he's going to lose his job. If he loses his job, he's going to get kicked out of the apartment program. So I figured at least for these two months, I could drive Eric to work in the mornings to, to help him save the money to fix his car. So we start doing the 45-minute commute in L.A., and our friendship grows. We, we talk about deep things. We talk about shallow surface-level things that dudes tend to talk about. And at one point, we started talking about cars. And I had just got my first uh, new car. My grandpa co-signed on a loan. I got 2.9% interest rate. I thought it was pretty financially savvy. And I asked Eric, hey, where'd you get your car? And he told me about this dealership in L.A. called Ugly Duck Used Cars. And um, his interest rate was 32%. 32%. In Scripture, they call that usury, where you take advantage of another person 
with unjust interest rates. And right in that moment, something in me just snapped, and I was livid. One of my mentors had said, God speaks to you through whatever breaks your heart or makes you really mad. And in that moment, I was livid, and my heart was broken for Eric. And I knew that part of my journey in this life would to be a voice for the voiceless, to be a voice for people like Eric, like Jyoti and Shama. Now, at some point in your life, you're going to have an experience where Jesus so breaks your heart for something, where he makes you really mad. And in that moment, be like the little boy and say, yes, Jesus, here's what I have, and follow him. Especially this week. This today is Palm Sunday, and as we enter this week, looking towards the cross on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. Let's follow Jesus and enter this life with full joy and hope. This is a great journey to follow Jesus, especially to the darkest places on our planet. Amen.